1: Pixel Sift is proudly supported by Murdoch University School of Arts At Murdoch University School of Arts, you can study a degree that'll keep up with the fast pace of modern media and learn how to debug a complex studio or a live stream setup like we can now do here at Pixelsift. You can, uh, it's been designed in consultation with industry and business and the Bachelor of Creative Media allows you to specialize in sound, graphic design, screen production, photography, or even games art and design. Whether you like playing and talking about games or making your own with your creative skills, you can use the Bachelor of Creative Arts to Pick up a broad range of skills that'll make you a competitive candidate when you head into the workforce. You can search Murdoch University and head to the website for more information. Murdoch University School of Arts, proudly supporting Pixel Sift. Hello and welcome to the first episode of Pixel Shift for 2018. My name is Gianni, and with me is the only person who's managed to make it out of that uh, holiday period. Uh, Mitch,
2: thanks for for rocking up. I'm the only one that left the country as well. How, I know, how you, did I get back? You and made then, it back like, on time. You know, no one else is here.
1: And joining us over the line, we've also got Morgan Jaffet. He's the creative director uh, behind the Hand of Fate series and works at Defiant Development. Morgan, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's
3: great to be here. We're going to be good talking. way to kick off the new year.
1: Thank with you. That. Well, we're really excited to hear more about Hand of Fate and Hand of Fate 2 and the board game that you've been putting together, Hand of Fate Ordeals, and everything else that Morgan does, because this is the Morgan show for today, <laughs> um, and everything else. But we're also going to be talking about some other stuff, aren't we, Mitch?
2: Yeah, so the PAX floor this year was brimming with couch co-op games. We like them a lot, but are they profitable? It's a good
1: question, Mitch. Are they profitable? Let's jump into our next topic, shall we? Or our first topic. For the first topic for 2018, let's see if everything works correctly.
2: Hit it. Mitch, what's Discord? Discord is an online chat service that most gamers use. Incidentally, you can also use it to talk to us at pixelsiv.com.au forward slash Discord. Yeah, you can talk about uh, episodes, you can talk about upcoming
1: topics, you can probably even coerce Mitch into playing a game with you online. That's not going to happen. That is Uh, going to happen. You're doing it. I'm saying that's happening. Sorry. Yeah, well... Why Join you, Discord. You should grow your beard back. Pixelsift.com.au forward slash Discord. Mitch,
2: we played a lot of couch co-op games at uh, PAX Australia this year. They're one of our favourite things to play. We do like them very much. And um, you now, but Morgan, you voiced some concerns over Twitter shortly after PAX this year um, about the uh, viability of how much money these um, games can possibly make. How do you arrive at that conclusion? Well... Look, there's a
3: few things going on here. And uh, for the record, I love couch co-op games. I, I have a blast with them. But I think what is really common is that people get a distorted view that what shows well at conferences will therefore be a profitable game. And I want to say at the outset, there are lots of people who are making games for reasons other than to try and make money out of it. Um, not everybody's running a games business. There are lots of people who, who make games as a hobby. There are lots of people who make games to achieve artistic ends. If that's, if that's what you're up to, go wild. But I, I, I do talk to a lot of young developers who really are trying to build their future through the, the games they make. And they're trying to build games that will make enough money to pay for the next game, to pay for the next game, to pay for the next game. And, uh, and if they're doing that with couch co-op games, I think they're on to a pretty tough wicket. You can look at an l- enormous number of critically acclaimed, really good crowd couch co-op games out of a whole bunch of countries, not just Australia, that have, have done incredibly well at shows um but then go on to uh, to financially find it really hard to to move the needle
1: there what, are exceptions hmm. what, um what do you think is the biggest challenge for for people making that conversion or what do you think is is that issue look i think i i
3: i can dig into some of the reasons which is just my theories mm-hmm. but but the truth is that you you can just look at the results they don't sell um, you only have to look across kind of steam spy which shows a a pretty accurate cross-section of, of what people have bought. It seems like people love to play them at shows. They would love to play them when they go around to a mate's place, but they won't buy them. They're, they're not... Um, they're, when they're browsing through the, the Steam store and something pops up and it's like couch co-op, they're like, ah, not today. And I think the reason for that is that most people are pretty happy with one or two couch co-op games that they might play with their friends and uh, and they don't feel the need to add a bunch of them to their Steam libraries, whereas with single-player experiences or online multiplayer experiences, they can chew up a lot of people's gaming time. Consoles are slightly different to, to PC. You get slightly better results on consoles, but even there, you know, selling digital download and titles is hard, like really hard in the, the current market. And it seems to be not what people are using their consoles
1: for as much. Do you think it's also, there's a factor that by it being a couch co op game where you have multiple people playing the same game, you're already splitting the number of purchases?
3: Yes, absolutely. Well, that, that factors into it, right? You know, in a four player sense, you, you've only got one purchase there for the, for the four players, which starts things off tough.
1: Why do you think it, um, you know, I guess people coming out of uh, their early career and getting into the games industry, why are they so drawn to to making this sort of game? Have you spoken to some other developers and see why that was the direction that they went in?
3: Well, I, I can tell you one of the big reasons is that a couch co-op game is instantly 10 times better than any other game that you could build with the same amount of effort. And the reason for that is as soon as you put a controller in somebody else's hand, you get the best AI known to mankind, which is a human being. Um, and it's it's really hard to build gameplay that uh, that humans can't make fun. Like you look at how many of the games of, uh, of kind of history have been built with, uh, with just a couple of rocks. Like Mancala is a great game for mm. people to play. It's a couple of rocks and you dig a few holes in the sand and you're ready to go. People are incredibly inventive, incredibly inventive, incredibly capable of coming up with interesting ideas. You give them a couple of inputs on a multiplayer game and all of a sudden it's fun. And it's fun because of what happens on the screen and it's fun because of what happens on the couch. You know, I can mock you for for how foolishly you've, you've done that move. I can find something that's exploitative that enables me to win every time. Then you'll start doing the exploitative thing for me, and back to me. And then we start, you know, looking for other edges to, to get the advantage. Um, it just makes a quick kind of game jam style game into something fun way faster than any other type of uh, any other type of game.
1: If people are trying to, as you said, you know, there's people out there who want to try and make this their career. And I guess people are trying to be as quick and fast and agile as possible. Can you kind of understand the, the, the draw towards this? Or do you think there is a, I guess, a perception that maybe everything else is too hard to make if you are starting out?
3: No, I, I absolutely understand the draw. And the other thing that happens is you take it to a show like PAX and you get all of these people. You you can pull four people into your uh, into your booth. They're there to play games. They'll sit down. They'll have a good time. They'll tell you that, that they thought it was great. And you get this really fabulous positive feedback loop that I think when you're young and inexperienced makes you go, well, we've got a hit on our hands, right? Um, and unfortunately, I know that there are so many ways to make people happy and uh, and not to sell any games. i've I've made games people have loved that uh, that haven't sold any units and and that's I think that market analysis side is missing from a lot of those conversations, which lets lets those developers down. But I one hundred percent understand why they can do it. and And the thing I would say is that even though it is easy, um, there are other paths. You should always look at what resources you've got available to in terms of time and effort. Um, there are other ways to use those resources to push in a direction of something that's li- uh, more likely to end up um, as a as a profitable um, uh, title in the end.
1: So I mean, what are some of these other parts that you would sort of recommend to these early stage developers, and you know if they're thinking about the, taking their first step in? The
3: thing I think every developer should be doing, <clears throat> is some form of market analysis for the market they're in when we were making mobile games uh, we would look at the new releases every week when they came out um, we would we would scan down the list of new releases everybody was releasing one day or in the the 24 hours before the app store updated we would run down the list we would look at every game we would download as many of them as we could we would we would give them a quick play. We would try and evaluate which ones we thought would be editor's choice, and and in the the you know games we recommend list. The next day, we would compare those results to what actually happened. We would then see through App Annie uh, how long those games hung around in the charts. Use that to estimate sales. Um, we did that every week. That that was a that was part of our business. We did that every week for three years, mm. and by the end, you start being able to look at games and go, you know what? I think this is a game that's likely to succeed, even when it's something new and and fresh. Right? You can still look at it. Um, Gorogoa came out a few weeks ago. Yeah. And you can look at that and you can go, yep, that's that's great. That is that is a success. It's a paid. Game on iOS, so it's a success that will be moderated by the fact that paid games are only so successful nowadays. Free to play games tend to make a lot more money, but you know that it's a one person game, they put five years into it. You can look at that and say, I reckon that, that it will be worth the time they spent, the, the five years they spent on uh, making it. Um, you can make those sort of projections and, and estimations. And now that we're on Steam, we do exactly the same thing. We're looking at the top charts every week. We know which games are through, we know which games from the, the top to the bottom, and whenever anything is coming out, uh, Dan, who's my business partner in Defiant, uh, our technical director and the co founder, um, Dan and I are like, what do you think it's going to sell? Do you think it'll sell 5,000 units? Do you think it'll sell 10,000 units? Mm-hmm. Do you think it'll sell 50,000 units, 100,000 units in the first month? And SteamSpy now gives you a really good tool to compare those guesses to the reality. And I've found we're mostly right. Um, we're mostly right. And when we're wrong, that means we've got something to learn, which is great. And we've gone from being mostly wrong to mostly right. And, and that market research, indies have to do.
1: Mm. How accurate do you find Steam Spy? I guess you've got a couple of games out there now that you can compare it against. Is it a, a relatively accurate uh, tool to use to get an idea of what it's? It's good if you watch it very closely.
3: Mm. Um, because things like free weekends, humble bundles, sales, all throw the numbers out, right? Mm. So so you need to be able to um, – you kind of need to keep on top of it. If you're watching a game at launch, and it's probably on Steam at launch week, and there's a few keys coming in from press, but there's not a lot of stuff happening elsewhere, generally it's pretty accurate over the, the launch week takes a few days to get to be accurate and you get a sense pretty quickly for the, the places where it's not in it and not very accurate. So if a game sold less than 2000 copies, then it's not super accurate about exactly where they fit in that mix. It can be out by as much as a hundred percent. But once you get up to numbers that are a little higher and particularly if there's been some time after the launch week they tend to be accurate they're, they're kind of plus or minus about 10 percent. Um, we've found for most developers we've compared nodes with
1: and um i guess you've you've mentioned Goragoa there but what are some other good uh, examples you think that uh, people can look at as sort of a small team that's put together something really interesting Gosh, that's a great question. I think,
3: I, you know, I I would say in terms of Australian titles, look at Forts, which mm-hmm. is a, a game that's um, was released this year. That's fabulous. I love Forts. And, uh, <laughs> great, great game. Great team. Mm-hmm. Um, again, quite a long development cycle. Tim worked on that on and off for for.
1: Most of it, ten or more years.
3: Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, but the real work came in the last two or three years with with uh, him and Nick pushing on it, and then Jeff. Um, so that's that's a good example of a small, like a very refined and and iterated idea, then taken to a really good place. Yonder again is a small team game. Um, Android Assault Cactus. I mean, I don't want to focus just on Brisbane games. Um, but but <laughs> yeah, you know, I love Brisbane games. Here. Yeah, that's 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 right. But all of those are really good examples of, of hitting that mark, right? There's there's some, um, there's some a lot of things that are happening in other places, but all, all those games are commercial, which is good.
1: And I guess I could chuck in uh, the games that John Kane works on. Uh, Mallow Drops is yes. another good example. Uh, Killing Time at Lightspeed. Um, yep. You know, some other great ones. There's plenty of... Um Excellent ones to check out. So
2: A lot of the games there's, there's... that we've covered on our show. Well, Australia's doing
1: <laughs> amazingly well, I think, with this sort of, um, you know, we've had a, a number of studios, and I know you've worked at some big studios, Morgan, um, where people have kind of taken their experience from that, and then now as the scene has sort of developed into this sort of, you know, semi-indie, double-A sort of scene that we have, um, we're seeing people making some really amazing stuff, so...
3: I think it's, that's uh, that's exactly right. It's great,
1: great the, time. the
3: breadth of games doing well and finding an audience is uh, is remarkable in Australia at the moment, and something that uh, that I think we really punch above our weight on. Um, I mean, you can look at Australian games coming out at the same moment as kind of what what were previously big studio titles,
1: mm.
3: and outselling them on Steam. Um, so it's been a good run. Hollow Knight is a fabulous example right that's
1: yeah. that's
3: a uh, that's a 10 out of 10 adelaide game <laughs> that's uh that's up for a lot of awards this year you know team team cherry did really good things they took a small team um and really busted it out
1: visit us on pixelsift.com.au If you're just joining us, we're joined by Morgan Jaffet, he's the Creative Director at Defiant Development, uh, to talk a bit about your game, which is Hand of Fate now, and Hand of Fate 2, which has just come out, the sequel. Now, for people who haven't played your game, what is Hand of Fate all about? So, Hand of Fate is a
3: game of life and death against the dealer, who's a a character who sits across the table from you and offers commentary throughout the game. Um, You build up decks of cards, so it's a deck-builder game, like a, a Hearthstone, I guess. Um, but those decks of cards are then laid out to become the dungeon floor that you move through. And whenever you reach a combat, uh, the whole game goes from this tabletop where those cards are laid out into 3D environments where you do Arkham-style or, or God of War-style combat in order to to resolve those encounters. So it's a little bit a deck-builder. It's a little bit an action game. It's a little bit an RPG and uh, and it's a little bit like a nostalgia fueled journey through old D and D campaigns and uh, and choose your own adventure novels. Um, and it's not really exactly like anything else, but, uh, but it's got elements drawn from a whole bunch of places.
2: Well, credit where it's due. I mean, I wouldn't think that any of those things would ever go together, like cards and an action game. I thought they were, I honestly thought they were pretty exclusive of each other, but you've managed to make it work. Um, how, what was the initial reaction from people when you told them the idea? I think
1: (laughs) the
3: initial, the, the initial reaction from most people, honestly, is confusion. Um, and I think that is something that we as a studio actually like, um, mm. in that we're confident that we can execute and bring ideas together. We knew we'd brought cards into the mix in an action game for a reason, um, and I'm, I'm very happy to dig into those reasons. But, mm. but we, knew, we knew we'd done it and we felt like there was something there. And we also knew that it wasn't 100% clear what the top line sales pitch for this game was. And, and a lot of us used to work for EA. Um, and I don't know if you know much about the way EA rates ideas internally, but they're, they're very, um, obsessed or they were in my day about this thing they called the razor or the X, which is effectively the, the kind of top line vision for the game. You know, why will people talk about this? The whole game needs to be boiled down into, to one sentence. Um, mercenaries which which pandemic did you know the top line vision for that was it's gta in a war zone right like Mm. top line vision that's that's what it is that's what people want um let's let's get it through and in a lot of ways us making these weird baroque confusing multifaceted games is a response to that we didn't want to do something that was simple and, and summed up in one line we wanted to do something that was complex and interwoven um because those are the sorts of games that we liked uh, in, in, so many, in so many ways, Hand of Fate is a love song to what we loved growing up. So there's a lot of nostalgia in there. And it's nostalgia from games from the 80s and 90s. It's video games, but also you know tabletop games and pen and paper games and board games. It's, it's all of those things pulling in together.
1: So you did mention there that you had a very concrete reason as to why you wanted to include card games. And, and, and how did all these little bits and pieces come together and what was it kind of like to build this game from the initial stages to the point where people can play it and love it? So, so we have a really organic process. But what actually – the
3: drive for the cards came from our previous game. So we made a game called Hero's Call. And Hero's Call was a uh, Diablo-style mobile dungeon crawler. Um, And a pretty good one for the time, actually. I was really happy with what we did. But one of the things we did is we built this kind of mission randomization system that was very deep. And it could take any element of the plot and any map and any set of content and make it level appropriate for wherever your hero was. And what we found is that nobody knew that was going on. Nobody appreciated why it was clever and everybody just assumed that it was a linear game that we kind of built out in a linear fashion. Mm. So when we actually dug into that afterwards, we were like, well, we spent a lot of effort building our randomization systems. Um, Should we just ditch them and make a linear game next or should we make a a kind of complex and procedural game? Um, And if we do, how do we explain that to the players? And we kind of brooded on that for a while. And then somebody was like, what if when we randomized it, it was a deck of cards and players could see the bits shuffling through <laughs> and then know what card they'd drawn. And as soon as we settled on that, we were like, "Ah, oh, that's great. And then some cards can be story and some cards can be combat. and And because we play a lot of board games and card games, as soon as we settled on on the card motif, we were like, "Well, that lets us do mechanics that work on the tabletop. That lets us have cards for items." There's, there were all of these things that flowed forth from it, I, I but it was this. really driven by this desire to make the the randomization meaningful.
2: Uh, I love how you said you wanted to make the randomization meaningful because that it was. It's I ended up looking forward to the card part of the game more than the action part when um when it was being played. I was just I, I liked it. I liked rolling a card and being like, "Oh, I don't want that. That's the worst." It's like Like, oh, seriously, ambushed? Like, that kind of thing. Mm. And that added a nice break and a nice, like, a bit of change to the gameplay that a lot of games struggle to make meaningful change and still continue as, like, a functioning unit. And I, I like that a lot. It
3: also lets us do really expensive things, right? So if you imagine this game as a Bioware RPG, um... Every time you meet a character, that character has to have a three D model. You know, mm. if you want to meet them in a new environment, then then you have to model that environment. That's that's time consuming and expensive and effort. Whereas we can just write. You know, a giant eagle sweeps you up in its uh, in its claws, carries you, and shows you a the the map of the entire land laid out. And we can flip some cards over while we do that to show you the map of the entire land laid out. And uh, and you know, and the wizard upon it. Turns to you and says, "Where would you like to land?" And you can pick a spot. And that that card, if you, in pure text and mechanics, is quite cheap to make by comparison. Mm-hmm. So, and and I, I agree with you. One of the things I like most about Hand of Fate is the rhythm of the game. It moves you from part to part in a way that I think is really interesting.
1: It's part efficiency, part style. With the um... yeah, exactly. Now, um, you've, you've just released Hand of Fate 2. Um, what was changed and what did you build on from this original game that you, you had a, a nice framework there? And what, what, what was a change for the sequel? So when
3: we finished Hand of Fate 2, sorry, Hand of Fate 1, um, one of our designers, Liam, uh, turned around and he's like, ah, I know what a Hand of Fate game is now. It's a shame we've, we've only kind of worked it out at the end. Um, and he was right because that is our organic process. means means our games come together at the end, and there's a, there's a lot of refinement that happens in the last moment. And Hand of Fate Two was really driven by the desire for us to say, "Well, we know what a Hand of Fate game is now. Um, it's a new thing. Nobody had ever made one of those before. Now we've made ours. Let's make a as good a one as we can. We know what we're doing now. We know how all the pieces go together. Let's let's do it everything right that we can and uh and I think um I'm really proud of what we achieved with with Hand of Fate 2 we've we've taken a lot of the things that that were challenges for us in Hand of Fate 1 we've we've built ways to make deck building more meaningful to make the the narrative more impactful to uh to give players real ways to affect the outcomes of their actions um it's a very different experience so if hand of fate one was kind of the first stab at uh at our um understanding that idea hand of fate two for us is the is the the final word on that sort of game
1: um as it's the final word does that mean that you would be just building on hand of fate two or, or is there a hand of fate three down the track or how how does that sort of change the way that you you do further games or are you done with hand of fate
3: I will never say never because that <laughs> will just come back to bite me. Yeah. Um. But but the truth of the matter is uh, we've built Hand of Fate 2 so that we can build additional content much more easily and, and much more meaningfully. With Hand of Fate 1, we did uh, six separate DLC updates, one paid and five free um, I, in about the year after it launched. We have plans to do at least... That much and more for for Hand of Fate Two. Um, Handa Fate Two has been built so that it can be a platform for us to keep delivering different ideas and new content on in a much more uh, in a much more straightforward and understandable fashion than than Hand of Fate One. Um, and uh, we're starting work on something fresh, so we're putting new hand of fate as so hand of fate three as opposed to more stuff for hand of fate two um on the back burner for for at least a while um for me if i if we were to do it again i've always said i'd like to do a different genre so you know hand of fate wild west or hand of fate uh Mafia or hand of fate space mm. or I was you know, just going to say that, that I would
2: love to see hand of fate in space and you just said it <laughs> and that'd be great. There you go. Yeah. Um,
3: so so those sorts of things uh, and you know there's the um, or the 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 common conversation around the office is the hand of fate uh, romance game which is hand of date.
2: Yep, <laughs> done, sold, <laughs> do it now. So, so
3: <laughs> and and don't get me wrong, it is often that a pun. Is the driving force for a development um, policy with with our team.
1: Now, you're, you mentioned that you worked at um, some some bigger studios you worked with Pandemic, and you've also worked yep. with Relic and uh, Irrational Games as well. Now, what sort of experiences did you kind of take? I know you mentioned you had that sort of top line brief for your idea of your game, and you brought that along. But what other things have you brought from from these bigger companies, and, and what sort of things do you do differently at Define? Oh, uh,
3: so I think. Um, One thing that is that I I feel like I was trained to make games at a rational and that was very much in the looking glass lineage where you simulate things and you attach systems together and you keep building and you build those things together until such time as all of those systems work together and, and fun falls out the other end and then when i was at relic i was really fortunate to work with uh with josh moschiera Mus- who is a very talented designer and rob cunningham who's an amazing artist um and that was that showed me a way to build a project that was a lot more um i guess scoped and and, predict- and predictable where all those systems were designed in advance and the the ways they fit together were designed in advance and and an artistic vision really held up that game um, as opposed to a rational where a kind of narrative and conceptual vision uh, really held things up. And, uh, and then working in big kind of AAA studios, Ubisoft and EA, I got a sense of how all those things worked in to end defiance, a bit of a, a melange. Uh, so there's a, there's a blend of all of those elements there, but, one thing that we that we say a lot is we like to go where we don't know how to get out of until we've done it. Mm-hmm. So we go into dark places, and we go into dark places because we're confident in the ability of our team to deal with what they find there, whatever it may be, and we're confident in our ability to build torches and compasses and use those to find a way through the terrain, that's uh, that's currently unexplored. So every game we try and make sure has something that we don't know how to do when we set out to do it. Um, and we combine that with, uh, with leaning on the things that we do know how to do so that we've got a, a, a stable base to work from.
1: You mentioned uh, a little bit uh, before that, you know, you've got this uh, this team now and you've got an idea of what a Hand of Fate game is and you've been working with Rule and Make to translate the game of Hand of Fate into a physical board game. How did that sort of process begin and, and what did, uh, you know, how how did you change it and what did you adapt to, to bring it to the physical world? Well, the great thing about
3: working with Rule and Make on the Hand of Fate board game is that they understood from the the very start, and and the reason we work with them is they they're not far away geographically, but more than that, they're they're probably the best in Australia at what they do. And I I'd watched them go through the the Kickstarter and release process on a number of games previously. I really admired their professionalism. Um, I just just. Before we began this conversation, we were talking about the difficulties of doing physical goods and, and Kickstarters, and we did a Kickstarter for Hand of Fate 1, and I'd watch them do, I think, four Kickstarters since when we did Hand of Fate 1 to when we were talking about, to them about doing the Hand of Fate board game. And with every one of them, they, they do weekly updates, they have a really clear production plan, they hit their deadlines, and they deliver something really exciting. Um, so they were super professional, and we were talking about wanting to do a hand of fate board game. Um, I had some thoughts, and I started on a design, and Dan, uh, my business partner and co-founder, was uh, was very frank with me. And he's like, look, um, the question is, do you want to make it, or do you want it to get done? And the answer was, we, we wanted to get it uh, done. To get done you know we we wanted to have a a game out um around the same time as hand of fate 2 came out so ideally the kickstarter just before and the physical release just after um, and that meant working with partners so we kind of asked rule and make you know would they be interested we were really lucky in that both that they were and a designer that they work with barantis had actually pitched dan at jb hi-fi because he worked at JB Hi-Fi like a year earlier mm. before he'd been working with Roland Make, And he Dan came in and asked for something. And you know, it was like, oh, yeah, I make games. And uh, Brandis was like, oh, uh, which games? And Dan's like, Hand of Fate. He's like, I've got this great idea for a Hand of Fate board game. And Dan was like, oh, please go at JP Leave me be. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to buy my game and run away. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but, uh, but he'd been stewing on that, that idea since. And it was really about, Drilling into what's Hand of Fate about and then how do we make a board game that's about the same things versus how do we translate the Hand of Fate video experience to a literal tabletop experience, which wouldn't have been as much fun as the game that that Barantis has built. And, and I really, I feel like it's super important whenever you make a game for any platform, if you're going to make a mobile game, make a mobile game. If you're going to make a, a PC game, make a PC game. If you're going to make a board game, make a board game. Lean into what the strengths are, mm. and the Rule and Make crew really understand the strengths of board games so much better. And and what they've built is a is a competitive deck builder for four up to four players that can also be played solo. That has elements of cooperative in it as well. That has campaign modules that it to to play story campaigns um it's really it's really something impressive and uh and it's way more than i anticipated and and it does a great job of capturing the soul of hand of fate without being too attached to the literal mechanics which which as i say would have would have created something i don't think would have been nearly as good
1: how far away is it until people can start, you know, playing it in the uh, the real world as well as you know playing the the digital versions that you have put together? The
3: Kickstarter copies and the crowdfunding, um, sorry, the Kickstarter copies and the, the pre-orders will be going out. Um, sorry, will be going into production in a month and a bit. So that's that's the whole process of getting them all made at the factory mm-hmm. and getting them shipped out. So it shouldn't be too long after that that we're getting them into people's hands. And I think pre-orders are still open. So you can go to ordeals.com and sign up there and get onto that list. Um, and then after that, we'll be mo- moving into our full retail portion and it should be uh, should be available in stores for people to get their hands on.
1: So, you know, you can jump online, order the board game uh, version of Hand of Fate, and then while you're waiting, you can uh, play Hand of Fate 2 or Hand of Fate 1 uh, on your computer. And if people want to find out more info about that, where's the best place for them to head to, Morgan? The
3: best place is uh, is defiantdev.com, which uh, which will link to all of those, or uh, at DefiantDev on Twitter, or defiant development on Facebook. All of those places we constantly rattle on about what we're up
1: to. And that's pretty much all we've got time for today. So, Morgan, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure to learn a bit about uh, your thoughts on indie development and also the the games that you've been working hard on. Um, and uh, that's that's it for our first episode of 2018. Yeah. Uh, we've got uh, to say thank you to Murdoch University School of Arts for sponsoring the show. Um, as always, you can find links to everything that we've talked about, including the board game version of Hand of Fate, and of Fate Ordeals, or Hand of Fate 2, which you can pick up on multiple different platforms now. Um, on our brand new website, which I have just spent the last
2: month or so reprogramming myself. Dude, he's so proud of it. He uh, like walked in the office today. It's like, Mitch. Look at the website. Tell me like, how much oh, you've been looking the at it all weekend. Yeah, it's, it's great. I yeah. need to hear it. I need the validation, Mitch. It's very important to me.
1: <laughs> uh, that's at our normal address, which is pixelsift.com.au. Mitch, we've got uh, other sources if people don't want to go to our website, if they
2: hate me and they don't want to go check it out. Yeah, um, so you should definitely go to those instead of the website. It's facebook.com. Uh, facebook.com forward slash pixelsiv twitter.com forward slash sieve twitch.tv forward slash pixelsiv if you listen to it on twitch thank you very much and on youtube.com forward slash au for all the episodes you can find them on there too and
1: we've got a stack of other old episodes you can have a listen to them at your leisure yeah thank you very much for joining us morgan it was a pleasure to talk to you and we're looking forward to to playing some more hand of fate 2 and some hand of fate of deals
2: thanks for having me Yep, our next episode will be on the 18th of January at the same time. And we got a Let's Play next week if you can't wait. There we go. See you then.